from a healthcare merger that just won't seem to happen to all new cutting edge apps thanks to Apple and how big data is changing healthcare, you're in the right place because this is where the money is. Hi everyone, welcome to Where the Money Is. Again, we are not David Hansen and Matt Koppenheffer, we're David Williamson and Michael Douglas and we are your healthcare team and we have a very healthcare focused show for you today. Uh, it's what we do. Michael, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Let's make it happen. And uh, let's start, I guess, with our top story. I teased it. It's the merger that just won't happen, uh, despite a lot of insistence. Uh, we saw Valiant team up with uh, Bill Ackman, Pershing Square. They're going after Allergan. This is the Botox maker. Botox is a huge seller, although it's not all just wrinkle fighting. It, it does migraines as well. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we've seen uh, Valiant came with an offer. Uh, Allergan basically refused them. We, we had a tweet about it the other week. Uh, Bill Ackman really just wanted to get you know phone numbers of, of Allergan's board so he could talk to them directly. Uh, Valiant came back with a better offer. Uh, there was going to be a shareholder referendum vote to potentially put pressure on uh, Allergan's board, but now it looks like they may be moving hostile. It's been a little confusing. Yeah, so it looks like so Bill Ackman originally had said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have this sort of non-binding referendum to kind of put pressure on the board. And now he's saying, well, let's let's try and remove the board instead. Uh, so, you know, he kind of <laughs> went straight, straight for the throat there. Is he upset uh, that they wouldn't call him? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Call me maybe, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, so he's going to need uh, something like a quarter of shares uh, to support him in calling that vote. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see how that works out. Now, Valiant has ris raised their bait their bid from their first, second, and now third time, it's uh, to $72 per share plus 0.83 shares of Valiant per share. Mm -hmm. um, and this value is allocated over $50 billion. Um, so it's uh, it's definitely quite the offer, and Allergan has said they're going to consider it carefully. Uh, and then Bill Ackman just went ahead and, and decided to get a little bit more aggressive, I guess. Yeah, and I listened to the entire call. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, 3 hours, 38 minutes, and 30 seconds. But it was actually pretty excellent. They really walked anyone through Valiant's business model. If you're interested at all in that stock, I recommend trying to, to track it down. If you were interested in the Allergan deal, it's probably about the back fifth of the call. Uh, it's a really strong offer. They felt the two things were were the there were a sticking point with Allergan shareholders were the cash component, which is now up to 50% of where Allergan was before uh, Bill Ackman and Pershing Square crossed 5%, which sort of triggered all of this. Right. Uh, and then uh, they have a contingent value right that's CVR on DARPIN. This is a wet AMD drug that's macular degeneration. Uh, there's potentially a lot of upside. This could be a blockbuster drug. And Allergan shareholders wanted to make sure that the value of that drug was was accurately assessed. So this is almost this is a separately traded security that they'll get that could increase in value depending on how milestones are met. Right. Exactly. So it's uh, it's definitely a, a pretty uh, a much more aggressive bid. And uh, we kind of we're watching to see how this plays out. Yeah, I, I think it actually it's a deal that obviously makes sense for Valiant. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's uh, it's pretty aggressive, and I, I think it could actually make sense for Allergan shareholders. And, and this is going to put a lot of pressure on Allergan's board if if they're successful in overturning any of the board members. I think it's a fait accompli. I think it may be a fait accompli anyway. Valiant generally seems to get their target. Yeah, they, they generally do seem to. Then again, you know, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, the, the failed merger there, uh, is proves instructive that these things don't always pan out. So that's definitely something we'll want to watch very closely. That's true. Well, let's move on to our next headline. Uh, and this uh, was an announcement that the CMS mm -hmm. is going to start reimbursing screening 
for people uh, getting tested to see if they have hepatitis C. Now, now it's going to be for people who fall into two categories. Mm -hmm. uh, one is for... Uh, individuals who have a current or past history of illicit injection drug use uh, and those who have received blood transfusions prior than 1992. Right. And then the second group is basically, and th that first group is considered sort of high-risk people. The yep. second group is then people who do not meet the high risk as defined above, but who were born from 1945 through 1965. Um, so this Seniors. Is, right. So this is a potentially really pretty large, very large group. Um, and I think one of the problems with uh, some of these some of these diseases like hepatitis C is um, that often a lot of people who may have it aren't aware that they have it. Uh, it's sort of an underdiagnosis, under uh, underreporting issue. Well, and because day to day there isn't really an issue, but over time it causes liver failure and right. transplants, and that's where a lot of the real costs come in. Exactly for for a, for a group of the people. Um, so, you know if. If more people are getting tested and if more people are getting um, diagnosed, then the big question, of course, for investors is who benefits? And of course, the big one is going to be Gilead, Gilead with yep. Savaldi, uh, which is a um, interferon-free, uh, all-oral uh, cocktail for... Um, Genotypes 2 and 3, right. but it can be combined uh, with the Johnson & Johnson drug. Uh, Eli, uh, Gilead's working on one of their own for interferon-free for genotype 1. Exactly. And Savaldi brought in $2 billion last quarter, which is his first full quarter on the market. Yeah, $2.3 billion? Yeah. And expectations were for $1.4 So they just blew the doors off the market. Right. And, and this has been, I mean, a really, really fast uptake drug with a lot of revenue coming in very quickly. Um, so... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there. I think for J and J and for Gilead. Of course, there are also competitors potentially coming to market as well. You know, we've got AbbVie with a, uh, a six pill combo. It's a little messier than one pill a day. Right. Uh, then, uh, but equally efficacious. Right. And then you've got uh, potentially further down the line, both Merck and Bristol Myers Squibb also working on uh, hepatitis C drugs. So, so there's a lot of opportunity there for a lot of different players, particularly if this market keeps getting bigger. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of the question. Yeah. Uh, whether there was just a lot of patients who were waiting for Gilead's drug and that caused a surge at the beginning, or the, mm -hmm. whether there's going to be a long tail for treatment in this market, but uh, getting additional screenings and, and having them uh, paid for. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so people will go get them. That that's nothing but a great tailwind for uh, companies like Gilead and, and AbbVie who are going to be uh, participating in this market. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move to our third headline, and uh, it's the uh, it's the conjunction of tech and healthcare, which, mm -hmm. is, which is always nice to see. Apple they had their big worldwide developer conference the other day, and really one of the biggest headlines coming out of it was their new uh, HealthKit app, which is really going to be an all encompassing healthcare solution basically for, for users. Uh, they did note that uh, you know developers have a, a vast array of, of healthcare apps, but instead of having a siloed approach, this is going to be more of a, um, uh, a comprehensive platform for Apple. Right. So, so you know, they've got the health app and then this sort of health kit framework. And the idea behind it is that, um, you know, a lot of health kit enabled uh, devices and apps will be able to sort of transfer information in uh, to it. And they can sort of serve as a uh, repository for mm -hmm. it. Um, so you've got Nike's Fuel Band is uh, definitely one that's been uh, suggested a lot. You know, Nike and Apple developers have been working closely for a while. Um, 
Mayo Clinic and uh, Epic Systems, which are both sort of giants in their own area. Yep. Uh, are both Epic is privately traded, but they're a dominant player in the space. Absolutely. And, and privately held, not privately traded. <laughs> <laughs> and Mayo Clinic, of course, is just yes. really well known for research and really being at the cutting edge. So they're both um, looking at ways to integrate with Apple as well. Um, now, of course, there's a big question, right? What does the future hold for this area? You know, wearables and, and health apps. You know, where have seen Samsung is, is competing here as well? Right, with the Sam, uh, uh, SIM band, mm -hmm. uh, which was only uh, released, uh, I think, last week, uh, announced last week. Um, it, it's hard to see a crystal ball kind of for one company, right? But one of the nice things about the wearables market is that it looks like it could be a really potentially big growing area. Uh, according to uh, one uh, firm, uh, the smart bands market is expected to go 350% year over year to 8 million shipments uh, by the end of 2014, uh, 23 million units in 2015, and uh, over 45 million units in 2017. So that could be, as we just talked about with Gilead, potentially a really big tailwind for, for Apple, for Samsung, for anybody kind of competing in this wearable space. And of course, Apple's iWatch is another kind of big question. Yeah, I think you're going to see this, you know, this platform that, mm -hmm. that's really integrated between the watch and, and various apps or, or fuel band or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is, um, so people can can track their health better. And I, I think it's actually going to be increasingly important for doctors, mm -hmm. uh, for people who have chronic conditions, um, because, you know, we could be seeing a future where doctors say, you know, they might prescribe a treatment, but they're also going to prescribe an app yep. and say, we need you to, f to fill this out so we can track your progress, see how you're doing. Then when I, when I see you back here in a, in a month or a couple months, I'll have a clearer picture of what's going on in your life instead of just sort of what you tell me anecdotally. Right. Uh, I, I think that could be a, a, a big part of the future. Uh, later in the show, we're going to talk about uh, Health Data Palooza, yeah. which is a, a conference that's ongoing right now. It's really about big data and healthcare. There were 70 apps that debuted at this conference. Uh, this is really going to be transformational as far as uh, personal healthcare, and I think the healthcare industry in general, and companies like Apple and Samsung, uh, they're really going to be at the cutting edge of it. You know, whether HealthKit is, is that transformational you know, transformational product. I don't know. You know, some of the features didn't necessarily look uh, that important, but I think having good partners, mm -hmm. and I think certainly having that installed base that that Apple's you know mobile devices have, that'll be that'll be really important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to our uh, um, our next segment, which is in focus, and we're going to do a, a deep dive into the drug development process. Um, we promise not to get too into the weeds, but uh, we know there are probably a lot of uh, new healthcare investors listening to this, and we, we throw out a lot of terms, yeah. and we thought this would be a good chance to sort of go through that process so everyone uh, has a better idea of, of where we're coming from mm -hmm. when we talk about this. Now, it takes about, what, 10 years and about a billion dollars to develop a drug, uh, but there's a lot of attrition yeah. along the way. Uh, most drugs fail. Uh, it's, it's what, about a, an 85, 90% failure rate overall? Yeah, yeah, and even higher in some, in some groups. I think oncology particularly has trouble, which is a shame because, of course, cancer is such an important area for yeah. development and, and research. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, let's start at the beginning. So, so we start uh, generally in preclinical, and this mm -hmm. is sort of where there's computer models and animal testing. And then when it moves into um, clinical trials. It starts at phase one. This is generally just safety. And when you sort of look at the clinical trial progression, safety is usually what knocks off drugs early and efficacy is what knocks them off later. Yeah. Uh, but phase one, uh, we generally assign no value as investors to phase one. And, and this is sort of uh, generally just a safety trial to work on dosing and to set up 
later stage trials. It's also called an early stage trial. Well, and also, you know, usually the groups in phase one trials are so small that getting any sort of mm -hmm. idea of what a clinical benefit is, you know, when you've got 35 people, it's just, it's, it's hard to really get a good sense. And I mean, you'll see some phase one trials with, with less than 10, six, five, six yeah. people. So, you know, depending on how rare the disease is. So mm -hmm. you really can't draw too many conclusions other than um, it's always good when a drug makes it through phase one because then right. you can really start getting to the, the meat of the matter. Yeah, you know? so it's usually interesting to watch after phase one, but we really don't we really don't get too excited about and it. And any later. stock that pops on phase one, and that's, that's a silly pop for yeah. the most part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so phase two, that's actually where the highest failure rate is. Mm -hmm. uh, with phase one, uh, about half of drugs don't make it through phase one, mm -hmm. but over two thirds of drugs don't make it through phase two. So, so only one third of drugs survive. This is where you see safety and efficacy starts creeping in here. Right. Um, and these are called, these are called mid-stage trials. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so uh, you'll often hear us talk about um, possible toxicity issues, um, side effects. You know, th this is sort of the, the dreaded things that you see on labels, right? Things like heart attack and um, blood clot issues. And those um, don't always pop up in phase two, but uh, often we have some basic sense of them. Well, and the problem is usually when you see uh, an issue, a concerning issue pop up in phase two, because those trials aren't necessarily that large either. Right. Uh, bigger than phase one, but not necessarily that much bigger. When you move to phase three, which are the largest and most expensive of the trials, that's when small issues can become magnified. Right. And that's when you really see uh, the safety issues or any efficacy question marks. Uh, you know, maybe they weren't actual true markers of efficacy. Uh, this is what's called late stage trials. Uh, however, usually by phase three, a lot of the bad drugs have been weeded out, so we see a higher success rate. Um, Two-thirds of drugs actually get through phase three, so mm -hmm. it's, it's the inverse of phase two as far as uh, the success ratio. Uh, but just because you get through phase three, it doesn't mean your time through drug development is done. Nowhere close. I mean, you, you may have what you think is very good data, but then the next step is going to be the FDA, and we're talking about the U.S. approval process here, the yep. FDA Advisory Committee. Um, and, and this is usually an outside panel of experts. The FDA is not bound at all to follow their uh, recommendations, um, but they will go ahead and either recommend that the drug be approved or not be approved for an indication or for another indication based on sort of this, this extensive meeting that is often a bit of a grilling for uh, both sides. And they, they often uh, measure risk versus reward. So yeah. it's not just does this drug work, but should this drug be approved mm -hmm. given you know certain side effect issues or, or given the unmet need in the population. Maybe it has a messy safety profile, but there's no other treatments out there. So, right. so that can get it pushed through. Uh, as you said, the FDA is uh, not obligated at all to follow the ref recommendation of the advisory committee. It's often called an ADCOM mm -hmm. for short. Uh, so you see these drugs get favorable FDA reviews. I mean, we take a look at the obesity drug makers. Uh, there were three of them, Arena, Vivas, and Orexigen. Uh, all three were rejected by the FDA the first time. Orexigen, though, got a favorable advisory committee, and they actually ended up with the harshest uh, verdict by the FDA, and they were stuck running this long pre-approval trial. Mm -hmm. A, a, another phase three trial, and so their competitors, uh, who weren't original, who had worse FDA advisory committee votes the first time around, uh, ended up getting through and are both on the market while, while they're still stuck waiting. Right, um, and when the FDA uh, uh, rejects a drug, it's called a complete response letter, or CRL for or, short, or CRL for short, and you'll call you're, you'll hear us call it that regularly, um, or, or otherwise it's just an approval. Yeah. Um, and a CRL doesn't necessarily mean no forever, right? And we've seen plenty of drugs come back, um, you know, a 
the CRL says, well, you really need to handle this issue. You really need to run a uh, trial on this issue. And companies have often come back and resubmitted as yeah. successfully. It could be a manufacturing issue. Yes. You know, it could be nothing at all with the drug. It could be something like Mankind, where mm -hmm. they actually changed the device, the yeah. inhaler for their inhalable insulin, mm -hmm. uh, and the FDA said, no, we need a new trial. You can't, you can't run a trial with one device, then submit it with a different device right. saying, hey, this new device is so much better. You know, prove it. Mm -hmm. You have to go out there. And so they were stuck running another large pre-approval trial as well. Right, well, and, and Mankind is now on their, uh, on their third round in front of the FDA. And, uh, so that's th a good example that even though you fail, you can always try again. You can always try again, and, and again, sometimes successfully. So, and so we'll be watching that closely. And I think the other thing to look out for is something called accelerated approval. Yes. Uh, this is when drug companies often try to get approved based on phase two data alone. They mm -hmm. still have to end up running uh, usually a large phase three trial, although it's it's post-marketing, so they can sell the drug while running the trial. Right. You usually only see this for uh, drugs where there are uh, conditions that are unmet needs. As I mentioned earlier, there aren't any approved drugs for it. Uh, right now, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there are two companies, Sarepta and Persensa, uh, that have drugs that are going for accelerated approval. Sarepta is pretty strong phase two data. Presenza failed phase three trials, so I'm, I'm a little less bullish about, about their chances. We'll see what happens with the FDA. Uh, They're very strict mm -hmm. on allowing accelerated approval. So Well, right, because you've got, you've got such this comparatively small patient population, and you're trying to draw pretty big conclusions from a relatively small data set. So the data, the data have to be there. The safety has to be there. You gotta, and usually, you've got to run those sort of post-approval marketing uh, studies, and you have, uh, you've got to have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed for that to happen. But it can it can happen. So that, that's basically the drug development process. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see stocks pop and drop based on pretty much every point of this, right. uh, even including before the FDA uh, advisory committee, the FDA, the agency usually leaks briefing documents right. or releases them, They're not really leaking them. Uh, and so you get a little insight into the agency's view of the drug, and mm -hmm. that'll often cause big moves even before the advisory committee votes. Absolutely. So that's, that's the process, and it's something to, uh, to follow. We follow it closely, uh, and uh, I hope that that clears everything up. Well, let's move on to um, our mailbag which uh, we have a question, I believe, from uh, Todd this week. So he, Todd writes, Hi, guys. I've seen a lot of headlines lately about new cancer drugs that help your body fight the disease. What are the best stocks involved in this? And that's really a great question, Todd. Yeah. Thank you for writing in. Uh, right now, I'd really say it's a four-horse race yeah. uh, between four big pharmas. It's not really the biotechs that are actually on the cutting edge of this. You know, everyone gives pharma a knock for innovation, but it's, it's Bristol-Myers Squibb, mm -hmm. it's Merck, it's Roche, and it's AstraZeneca. Yeah, and, and, and what these... What these drugs are um, are doing is they're they're basically helping take the brakes off the immune system. So cancer uh, might have um, something like a, like a checkpoint that basically uh, makes it so uh, the immune system doesn't recognize it as cancerous, and and this basically removes yeah. that. It's basically like a Harry Potter cloak of invisibility that the cancer <laughs> throws on itself, and, and and these new drugs they're called PD one drugs. Mm -hmm. They help remove that cloak of invisibility, so the immune system can identify that this is cancerous. This is not uh, the regular you know body operations, and, and then it it swarms after it. But it's mm -hmm. not just these drugs that release the breaks, is it, Michael? No, no. I mean, there's also uh, uh, there are also drugs that sort of amp up your immune system. I think of them like Gatorade for your immune system. Uh, uh, Insight has got a drug called uh, INCB24360. And what a lot of these big pharmas, uh, specifically Merck, Bristol, 
and AstraZeneca are doing is they're testing their PD-1 inhibitors mm -hmm. with INCB24360. They're basically saying, well, if we take the brakes off the immune system and we amp it up at the same time, yep. well, then maybe, uh, maybe something even better could happen. And this is a way that they can potentially differentiate their drugs um, because you know, one of them might have just a really incredible uh, combination with it. Uh, so definitely something, definitely something to watch closely in this it, space. We've seen really good response rates mm -hmm. uh, in clinical trials, usually between 30 and 50 percent. And yeah. the durability of the response is what's really impressive because mm -hmm. it's almost like once the immune system gets keyed off that there's malignant cancer, uh, it really attacks it pretty voraciously. Uh, and I think the, you know, the long-term goal would be to create some sort of drug cocktail regimen that uh, you could treat cancer like a, a chronic condition mm -hmm. uh, and that it wouldn't necessarily be the death sentence uh, that metastatic cancer currently is. Um, you know, AstraZeneca, th there's really four parts. There's CTLA-4, there, there's PD-1. Uh, AstraZeneca is actually arguing that PD-L1, which is uh, sort of going after the same pathway but a little differently, mm -hmm. uh, that's different enough that they're working on both. Uh, so they're going to hope to maybe combo those up. And then there's... Uh, uh, MOX40, which is which is sort of the fourth uh, way, and, and it's just going to be a question of what's the best combination. We don't really know yet. This is this is really the cutting edge of science. None of these are approved. Right. Uh, it looks like Merck's will probably be the first to market, uh, followed by Bristol. Uh, then it'll probably be Roche or AstraZeneca. It's hard mm -hmm. to say. They're both a little further back. But you know, this is why AstraZeneca was arguing Pfizer was completely undervaluing them in, in, in a takeover attempt. They think these drugs could be huge. Um, I, I think they said what six and a half billion for for just their PDL one drug. Um, you know, we've seen estimates around you know seven eight billion mm -hmm. for for Bristol's Nivolumab. Uh, you know, six and a half seven for for Merck's thirty four seventy five. So. We're talking about mega blockbusters. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. Uh, and they all seem to be pretty well tolerated as well. We, don't, we haven't seen too many safety issues. There, there was one that cropped up. Uh, Bristol was teaming theirs up with another approved drug. They have Yervoy and lung cancer. Yeah, there was, there, there was a bit of a safety issue in lung cancer specifically. Uh, we don't know if that's going to be a, a larger safety issue in, in, in teaming them up. But there's a lot of excitement around these mm -hmm. drugs, and there deserves to be. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it could really transform how we handle handle a lot of cancer treatment. And so it's it's really exciting. And that's and they work basically in all solid tumor types too because mm -hmm. they're not even targeting a specific mutation. So uh, there's also a hope for a similar type platform in blood cancers, but that's that's further behind in development. Right. All right, well let's move on to our game segment. We're gonna play Bulver's Bear. All right. Uh, we have, I think, two stocks keyed up today. Uh, let's start with, uh, with Gilead. Uh, the ticker is GILD. This is one of the four big biotechs. And Michael, I think you're going to be the bull for Gilead. Sure, sure. I, I think that's a pretty, I, th I personally think that's a really easy thing to go for. So um, with Gilead, you've got really kind of three things that I think people should be excited about. The first is Savaldi. This is the hepatitis C drug we've been talking about. $2.3 billion in sales in its first quarter. And basically the momentum seems to be all there. I think this could be a drug that makes a lot of money this year and potentially more further down the road. Um, secondly, you've got the HIV portfolio. Um, and when you look at, we focus in on uh, Savaldi because you know 3.2 billion in sales in a quarter, that's enormous, right? But when you look at the fact that you know Truvada, which is one of their HIV um, cocktails, turned out 750 million last quarter, uh, that's 
really incredible sales. Um, and given that the CDC is arguing that Truvada should be taken by people at risk for HIV to help prevent HIV, potentially there could be some additional upside to the drug um, because it could be used as sort of a, a, a partial preventative measure, mm -hmm. uh, which would mean that you'd have people who are potentially high risk for HIV taking it for long periods of time. Um, and, you know, you've also got a Tripla, which made $780 million in the last quarter. So there's a lot of opportunity there outside of uh, Sivaldi. Thirdly, you've got an expansive pipeline, lots of drugs. Uh, and we're talking HIV, we're talking hepatitis C, uh, we're talking uh, other liver issues. Um, think about um, oncology. They've got a drug called Idololisib, uh, which is for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia that I think a lot of people are really excited about. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And Gilead could really shine in the, over the next few years. All right, I will take the bear argument here. I'll, uh, I'll keep it pretty short. Here's my thing. Shorter than me, I appreciate that. <laughs> First quarter sales, uh, as you mentioned, Savaldi 2.3 billion versus estimates of 1.4 billion. Okay, it's that's known. The hepatitis C is priced in. Savaldi mm -hmm. is killing it, uh, just doing a great job. Uh, here, here's my question for you. We're seeing pushback from payers over its cost, 84000 uh, right now for the 12-week regimen. They're going to cost more as soon as they get the combo treatment approved with mm -hmm. Lediposphere. Uh, they have competition coming. Right now they have the market to themselves. AbbVie's not that far behind them. Yeah, the drug's a little clunkier, but it works just as well and they can mm -hmm. compete on price. Merck uh, is a couple years out, but they ha will have a one drug uh, a one pill a day solution as well, uh, provided they can get approved and there are no safety issues. Uh, efficacy looks pretty good there as well uh, at 12 weeks. So my question is, we also probably saw warehousing. People were aware of this drug. We saw current hepatitis C treatment uh, treatment sales fall before Savaldi approval. Are we just seeing a huge surge? You know, what, what's the tale? Mm -hmm. You know, is, is, this is a cure. This isn't a chronic condition treatment. Uh, is this going to be a drug that just explodes through the roof as far as sales and then just dies just as quickly as it as it soared? Um, I, I think that's a concern. And then my other you know question is what's next? You know people know about Idelalasib, uh, but you know HIV that that's really the core of Gilead's business still. Generic HIV drugs are not that far off. I mean, that's that's a real threat to Gilead. Yes, they're getting people on, uh, you know, the, the the quad pill Strybuild, but there's still a lot of people on just Truvada on a Tripla. Mm -hmm. uh, those are at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, I I, I think Gilead. Uh, a lot of the good news is priced in, and I think they have a lot of risks ahead of them that that maybe the market isn't appreciating right now. Fair call. All right. Well, let's move on to our next. Uh, Bulver's bear argument, and I think it's going to be Ariad Pharmaceuticals, ticker A-R-I-A, -A, and uh, I'll be the bull here. I'll be the bull. Um, I'm going to start with saying the sell-off was too extreme. This is a, a company that has Iclusig. Uh, it is an approved uh, drug for, for blood cancer, for uh, CLL. Um, some safety issues cropped up. Uh, my, my, minor. Minor. Well, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, blood clots are pretty major. <laughs> Turns out there were some blood clots. The drug was pulled off the market. Uh, there was a black box warning. It's back on the market. Mm -hmm. uh, shares cratered about 60. They're down about 60% for the year. Um, but the drug's back on. And, and more importantly, Iclusig works, mm -hmm. right? And it really does extend life pretty well. It, it does have serious safety problems, but they're known. And Iclusig is for an awful disease. This isn't, you know, uh, something that people... Uh, you know, live with for 30 years. This is a really tough disease it treats, and, and it does 
a good job. They just had a solid tumor data released, so not just blood cancer, but solid tumors uh, that was presented at ASCO. I thought that was nice data there, so I think there's a chance to expand it. They're trying to expand iClusig into a number of indications, and they're going to start a trial later this year uh, to find out some optimal uh, efficacy for safety dosing for CL. They have not given up a first-line treatment. Right now, they're basically the treatment of last resort. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't given up moving up that treatment ladder. Uh, if they can find a dosing where you can still get uh, strong benefits of iclusig, but with less blood clotting issues, or maybe you, you take it with a blood thinner, uh, I think there's a chance for this stock to rebound, maybe not all the way to where it was, but certainly above where it is now. Fair enough. And on the bear side, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it very brief. Um, so you've got Eclusive, right? And, and the issue, as you've pointed out, is that this drug is a treatment of last resort as of right now. And and you know perhaps they'll be able to um, to reduce um, the the dosing and sort of get rid of some of those um, blood issues while simultaneously retaining some of the effectiveness, but perhaps not as well, right? And I, I think that's the, the really big question. You know, perhaps that won't work. We just don't know yet. There's no, there's no real data out there. Um, when you look at um, the fact that they've got all their eggs in one basket, right? So you look at their, their pipeline, and I encourage anybody to go to, uh, you know, Ariad, search Ariad pipeline, um, and you will find they've got one other drug in a phase no, two. No, it's the Iclusig show. Yeah, it's the Iclusig show, and they've got one other drug in a phase two trial for non-small cell lung cancer, right? So if Iclusig doesn't take off, then they're up a bit of a creek. Um, and then you look at valuation. Um, even though they have lost a ton of their value, they've still got a market cap of $1.25 billion. And when you look at last quarter, they had $8 million in occlusive sales and something like $12 million overall. So you start multiplying that out in, in revenue. And I mean, it still looks like a pretty expensive stock to me. Um, I don't think you have to be a, a, a Ben Graham-style investor to, to still think it might be a little overvalued, considering how much trouble it looks like it's having in its pipeline. So we'll keep it at that. All right, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. It's definitely it's definitely a riskier pick than than Gilead. For sure. All right. Well, let's move on to tweet it, mm -hmm. which is which is secretly my favorite part of the show. Not so secretly. <laughs> not, not so secretly. Uh, our first tweet, if we can have that up, comes from Charles Ornstein, and he's uh, referencing Susanna Fox, who uh, brilliantly describes the state of healthcare. Says it's like a teenager, brilliant at one moment stumbling at the next, and it's hashtag HDpalooza. Now, this is health data palooza. I, re I referenced it at the top of the show. This is really sort of where big data meets healthcare. Uh, there were a lot of people involved with this. With this. We had uh, Secretary Kathleen Sebelius spoke there. Uh, the, the man who helped turn around uh, healthcare.gov mm -hmm. uh, spoke there as well, Park. Um, and we really saw a lot of things. There were 70 apps that were debuted. Um, you know, one of them was was helping to doctors prescribe the right drug if if they couldn't get a hold of this drug. You know, help to diagnose conditions was was uh, something that was seen. Uh, there was a larger discussion about how big data can help lead to to better outcomes. The FDA debuted uh, a beta version of an adverse event website just filled with data. But I thought the most interesting thing came from Walgreens and Walmart and Target. Uh, they were all there, and they were basically discussing that yes, we're really involved with aspects of healthcare or in Walmart and Target's case, you know, we want to get more involved with aspects of healthcare. Uh, and, and companies like, like CVS, like Walgreens, they have a ton of data on their customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good point. And the real question is how they can best leverage that data. Well, and we've seen big data in other areas, right? Uh, in healthcare, uh, Watson, IBM's Watson, um, has been used in some circumstances to sort of try and help look at 
analytics and trends in data to see um, what opportunities there are to perhaps better target care, to better use care. And, and, and I think um, this kind of data is really critical if we're going to do this sort of patient-centered model that people have been talking about doing with healthcare for a while now in which theoretically people are starting to um, try to implement with things like uh, accountable care organizations, mm -hmm. which has been something Medicare has been doing and then you've been seeing in some, uh, some of the private companies like Aetna. Um, I think 45% of their costs are supposed to flow through some form of value-based um, contract by, by 2017. So yeah, We're seeing more and more stored data at various uh, sites, yeah. but there, it's not talking at all with each other. So I yeah. think sort of, you know, if you can take the patient's name, there's two ways of doing this. There's mm -hmm. trying to get patients better outcomes by being more aware of their own personal data mm -hmm. and also using the data in aggregate. So obviously people are a little, um, I think unsure of releasing their own personal healthcare data to a larger entity, but as long as it's effectively and safely scrubbed from from identity and it just moves into an aggregate pool, I think you can get uh, a lot of great knowledge and, and help you know bend that cost curve of healthcare costs down while improving outcomes for a population. Right. Well, and I think one of the one of the companies people are excited about is Athena Health, mm -hmm. which which talks. Um, they have a cloud-based software, and a lot of what they're doing is they're monitoring productivity, they're monitoring cash flow, things like that for your practice. And they're also they have this database of insurance rules, and they're um, sort of helping you submit the claims. And then if the claim is kicked back. They're figuring out why it was kicked back, helping resubmit it, and then uploading that information to the cloud so that it's better dispersed. And so you have some of less work on the administrative side so that practices can focus on well practicing. Now, I'm an Athena Health shareholder, for the record. Uh, I, I think that this is a, a fantastic company. Um, you know, they grew their core physician network by 31% year over year last quarter, uh, and their revenue at $163 million was up 30% from the same time last year. Um, that said, they are extremely pricey uh, from a sort of traditional PE standpoint, um, and they're not uh, consistently profitable. So, you know, something you want to watch very closely if you uh, if you're interested in investing in a company like that. I think so, but I think it's it's really going to be interesting to see how data transforms healthcare. Absolutely, it's something to watch. All right, well, let's move on to our next tweet, which I believe comes from John Carroll from uh, Fierce Biotech. I'm a big John Carroll fan. I, yeah. I love his writing. He wrote, "Love seeing." Teva and AstraZeneca provide huge peak sales projections on experimental drugs. Keep it coming. I will never forget, <laughs> which which sounds threatening, you know. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, and, and I think you th that's kind of why you don't see this very often, which is companies giving out their own peak sales estimates. Usually mm -hmm. it's left up to, to Wall Street analysts or, or people like us to, to come and, and model out what we think the potential market opportunity is. Mm -hmm. uh, but these are both companies that gave out their own peak sales estimates. And I think they're both trying to justify something, right? AstraZeneca is trying to justify why Pfizer was undervaluing it, mm -hmm. uh, and Teva was trying to justify its purchase of Labrys. Yeah. Uh, well, and with, with AstraZeneca, I mean, they, they have been under a lot of fire, I think, from a lot of people for not um, negotiating with Pfizer a little bit more, perhaps. And um, so they, they've been valuing out a lot of sort of early, uh, often early and mid-stage oncology compounds um, that you know, as we as we talked about earlier, can sometimes that can sometimes be a little worrisome because you're not sure really if these if these are going to make it through phase three and they're not sort of over that hump yet. AstraZeneca doesn't have the best track record either of, of advancing their drugs. Right. I mean, <laughs> there there is that problem uh, as well. Um, with Teva, I mean, of course, I, I think a big issue is. You know, capaxone. I mean, yeah, that, that's the elephant in the room whenever you're talking about Teva. It's their multiple right sclerosis now. drug. Yep. Uh, it's 
going off patent, possibly off patent. They're really fighting it to the Supreme Court yeah. right now. There hasn't been a generic competitor yet. They're trying to switch people to a three times weekly version versus a once daily version. Right. Uh, responsible for about a fifth of the company's revenue, about half of its net income. Yeah, I mean, uh, 4.3 billion. Now, 3.2 billion of that is in the U.S. So, you know, there there is some that isn't necessarily under attack yet because it's the U.S. patent that we're talking about. But it's it's a lot of it. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I want to mention this Labyrinth's purchase as well. Yeah. So uh, they purchased a drug LBR101, which is in phase two for migraine prevention. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it uses a proven path for migraine prevention, but it's also a path that's had safety issues. Right. And, and so uh, it's a little concerning. So that, that could be something that would pop up in a, in a late stage trial. Um, they're estimating peak sales for two to three billion dollars for this drug, which just seems massive to me. <laughs> and I think that that's sort of what the, the tweet goes to as far as skepticism. Right. I mean, Teva's paying $200 million up front, uh, $625 million in milestones, uh, which makes sense if you're talking about peak sales of that number, if that's how you're valuing it. Yeah, sure, that's a great deal. But, you know, here's the problem. Eli Lilly's already about you know, about a year ahead with its own version right. of a drug that, that's very similar. Uh, and then you also see a company like uh, Allergan, which you talked about, Botox is used to prevent migraines. Um, it did about, you know, a billion in, in non, um, I guess, wrinkle cosmetic, non-cosmetic sales. Um, but, you know, maybe a third of that was, was, was for migraines, sure. half at uh, best. So, you know, two to three billion, that seems deep for me. It seems like Tava's reaching. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I feel the same way. I have similar concerns. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our final tweet, uh, which is a picture. Uh, it comes also from Laura Strong, and she wrote, so much data, and then that's in reference to a different tweet from Dr. Atai writing, so sad, the abandoned poster's been hashtag ASCO14. Now, ASCO is uh, the big cancer conference is just wrapped up. When I saw that picture, I was like, no, think of the data, <laughs> yeah. you know, instead of think of the kids. Um, you know, all month we've really been talking about ASCO. Uh, it's really, there's been a lot of stock movement. Immuno-oncology mm -hmm. was, was the headliner, uh, just seeing all the team-ups, all the, all the data from that. It is funny, though, because everyone talks about these posters, you know, these poster presentations that the company are doing, you know, companies are doing, and, and um, they, they are often released, not all of them, but, but often are released ahead of the conference. People forget, though, they're actual posters. You, yeah. you have to do something with them after the conference ends. <laughs> Well, and, and uh, hopefully some of those are recycled. I mean, I don't know. No, it said recycled on the picture. Oh, okay, I good, that. good. I, I didn't see it. It's an environmentally like, oh, friendly conference. Okay, that's good. That, I, I feel <laughs> a lot better now. Uh, well, thank you, uh, thank you everyone for watching. For, for Michael Douglas, I'm David Williamson, and uh, we hope to see you back next week for Healthcare's Where the Money Is. And uh, join us every day for Market Checkup. It's our healthcare-focused investing show as well. Thanks for watching, and fool on.